Hello, everybody. I'm Danny Boom Boom McCarthy. What is up? I'm Daniel McCarthy, and this is episode 10 of the Story of Nowhere podcast. In the last episode, as well as in the most recent incarnation of They Say, I mentioned that I wanted to do a show on the left-right political spectrum because most people don't really give it much thought. They just throw around terms like left and right all willy-nilly without necessarily being able to provide clear and accurate definitions for either term much less doing so in a way that's historically consistent. So I jumped right on that, and, well, maybe now I'm giving it a little too much thought, because it's taken a lot longer than I originally expected, making sense of all this left-right business. So, in sum, today's show is not about the political spectrum, though I can assure you that right when I finish recording this quick little episode, I'll get right back to working on that one. Today, I want to talk about something... I guess maybe slightly related, but definitely significantly less complicated than the political spectrum. Today, I want to talk about Plato's Republic. However, I'm not going to be talking about the whole thing, because you can, and should, read the whole thing for yourself. Besides, it would take way more than just one episode to meaningfully dissect that monster of a book. Instead, I just want to laser in on one very specific and often overlooked bit that occurs toward the beginning of Plato's masterwork. This is episode 10 of The Story of Nowhere, The Lost Utopia of Socrates. In chapter 2 of The Story of Nowhere, the book, I discuss the ideal city as famously outlined by Socrates in The Republic. In my opinion, and I'm not alone in this, The city is authoritarian. In fact, totalitarian might be a better way to characterize it. For instance, only government-approved breeding is allowed, and once born, all children are raised by the state, never to know who their biological parents are. They're indoctrinated with state-sanctioned myths, propaganda which conditions and molds them to be good citizens. They're ushered through a universal curriculum, during which time their government stewards who observe them sort them into one of three social classes. They're taught a noble lie, which tells them that all the citizens of Callipolis, the beautiful city, make up one big happy family. The city functions smoothly so long as each class religiously attends to its set duties. The low class, taking up the majority of the population, engages in economic activity. The higher class lives in austerity and devotes itself to protecting the city from threats, both foreign and domestic. The highest class, taking up the smallest possible portion of the population, subtly rules over the city from behind the scenes. Because Plato, through the character of Socrates, places eugenics and propaganda and stuff like that in the perfect city, the Republic is often thought to be a document extolling the virtues of totalitarianism. And certainly, the city in the Republic ought to be looked at when studying the history of totalitarian politics. Obviously, I thought it was important enough to include it in my book. I mean, it is a pretty good blueprint of how that sort of system is usually planned out. I mean, hell, 
Even though the Republic remained lost in the Western world for pretty much the entirety of the Middle Ages, a strange and tertiary iteration of Platonism did permeate medieval Europe through a complicated game of telephone, and the medieval European society wound up bearing a number of strange similarities to Plato's beautiful city. In more modern times, socialist experiments, particularly those of the former Soviet Union and China, have been compared to Plato's top-down utopia, the idea being that while a totally regimented, propagandized, and controlled social system might look good on paper, in reality, it just doesn't pan out. And I agree. However, as usual, there is more to the story. For one thing, while over the years people in the West have been so quick to compare communist societies to the Republic, they conveniently ignore the similarities between the Republic and their own societies. One would do well to remember that Plato's great city is imperialistic, and that only its ruling classes live lives of austerity akin to communism. The economic class enjoys economic freedom, within a controlled frame set by the rulers. In this very important way, the great city more closely resembles fascism than communism, and by the way, that doesn't necessarily mean critics of communism are wrong in their comparisons. Fact is, the regime Plato outlines in the Republic is similar in numerous ways to damn near all major authoritarian projects which would follow it. The book is an eerily prophetic blueprint of a new sort of post-despotic tyranny, serving as the utopian inspiration for ambitious post-medievalists captivated by the rise of science and the potential for a world society ruled by committees of the most wise. But that is a conversation I'll be having for the rest of my life. What I want to talk about here is the fact that, because the great city in the Republic is so memorable and so influential, people who haven't actually read the book, but have read or heard about the book, are often left with the impression that Socrates, or really Plato, really wanted to set up such a totalitarian state and actually believed it would work out as planned. The reality of the situation is a bit murkier than that, and unfortunately, this nuance in Platonic politics can't always be adequately explored in works that seek to describe the great city in the Republic itself, as I did in my book. So here's what I wrote in Chapter 2. Quote, It must be pointed out that the Republic is a momentous work, and by no means is it merely a constitution for a totalitarian government. The utopian city-state is, at least in part, presented as a metaphor for the well-mannered, self-disciplined, and just individual. As has been said already, philosophy is a nuanced business which one must confront on her own. Even still, other works by Plato seriously suggest that he was indeed politically authoritarian, and his Republic undeniably introduces some of the most critical elements of social engineering. In his quest for virtue and justice, Plato inadvertently laid the groundwork for some of history's deadliest and most oppressive regimes. Unquote. Given the nature of my book, I ultimately concluded that any more time spent on Plato's politics outside of the utopia described in his greatest work would be distracting and unnecessary. So I left it there. Now, we can pick it back up. It's true that other Platonic dialogues do suggest favor for, at least what I would consider to be, authoritarian government. I'm thinking of Timaeus, Statesman, and the Laws, as well as a mysterious work traditionally attributed to Plato called the Seventh Letter, referring to the seventh in a series of letters, again, traditionally thought to have been written by Plato. So, take that for whatever it's worth. 
Incidentally, the seventh letter in English is G. Anyhow, it seems pretty safe to say that Plato was a believer in a strong state in which wise rulers, via institutions, secured the virtue of their subjects. It's also worth noting, as I said in that passage from my book, that the Republic isn't just a book about an ideal city. In fact, that doesn't even make up half the book. The book is about justice, and the city is just a metaphor, a macrocosmic view of justice, intended to illustrate what justice looks like on the individual level. So you see, perfectly ordered city, perfectly ordered individual. City's youth only taught pro-city myths and propaganda, individual only concerns him or herself with stuff which will improve him or herself, etc. But don't think that by issuing this disclaimer, I contradict what I said earlier about this fictional state's influence. There is a historically pervasive belief among utopian theorists that if the few truly wise individuals alive in the present got together and established the ideal state, then eventually, by feeding people through its institutions, the race itself will be perfected. Plato's metaphor becomes a method, a method by which humanity is, theoretically, improved by the state. Remember earlier how I said that it's not entirely wrong to compare the Republic to authoritarian communism? On that note, let's actually talk about the Republic, specifically Book 2 of the Republic. Here there is an often overlooked detail. Despite all the talk about all-wise philosopher kings and eugenics and propaganda and imperialism which define the great city of the Republic and the rest of Plato's political works, it turns out that Socrates, the main character in most of the dialogues and the mouthpiece of Platonic philosophy, did not actually want it to be that way. In fact, Socrates appeared to have been something of an anarchist, seeing the state and all its authoritarian implements to arise necessarily out of humanity's greed. In other words, when he describes the so-called ideal city, and presumably this carries over into his other political dialogues, he's doing so only after first assuming that the people are going to want to live beyond their means, that they will want luxuries. The big metropolitan utopia with an imperial army and technocratic overlords is what will be required, he argues, to sustain a people who demand luxuries. But Socrates' own personal utopia is a very, very different kind of place. His utopia is society at its most fundamental. Reading from the perspective of Socrates, Well then, I said, a city, as I believe, comes into being because each of us isn't self-sufficient, but is in need of much. Do you believe there's another beginning to the founding of a city? None at all, he said, he being Adimantus, Plato's brother. So then, when one man takes on another for one need and another for another need, and, since many things are needed, many men gather in one settlement as partners and helpers, to this common settlement we give the name city, don't we? Most certainly. Now, does one man give a share to another, if he does give a share or take a share, in the belief that it's better for himself? Certainly. Come now, I said. Let's make a city in speech from the beginning. Our need, as it seems, will make it. Of course. Well now, the first and greatest of needs is the provision of food for existing and living. Certainly. Second, of course, is housing, and third, clothing and such. 
that's so. Now wait, I said. How will the city be sufficient to provide for this much? Won't one man be a farmer, another the house builder, and still another a weaver? Or shall we add to it a shoemaker, or some other man who cares for what has to do with the body? Certainly, the city of utmost necessity would be made of four or five men. It looks like it. Now what about this? Must each one of them put his work at the disposition of all in common? For example, must the farmer, one man, provide food for four and spend four times as much time and labor in the provision of food and then give it in common to the others? Or must he neglect them and produce a fourth part of the food in a fourth part of the time and use the other three parts for the provision of a house, clothing, and shoes, not taking the trouble to share in common with others, but minding his own business for himself? And Adiamentus said, Perhaps, Socrates, the latter is easier than the former. It wouldn't be strange by Zeus, I said. I myself also had the thought when you spoke that, in the first place, each of us is naturally not quite like anyone else, but rather differs in his nature. Different men are apt for the accomplishment of different jobs. Isn't that your opinion? It is. And what about this? Who would do a finer job? One man practicing many arts, or one man, one art? One man, one art, he said. And further, it's also plain, I suppose, that if a man lets the crucial moment in any work pass, it is completely ruined. Yes, it is plain. I don't suppose the thing done is willing to await the leisure of the man who does it, but it's necessary for the man who does it to follow close upon the thing done, and not as a spare time occupation. It is necessary. So, on this basis, each thing becomes more plentiful, finer, and easier when one man, exempt from other tasks, does one thing according to nature and at the critical moment. That's entirely certain. Now then, Adiamantus, there's need of more citizens than four for the provisions of which we were speaking. For the farmer, as it seems, won't make his own plow himself, if he's going to be a fine one, or his hoe, or the rest of the tools for farming. And the house-builder won't either, and he needs many too. And it will be the same with the weaver and the shoemaker, won't it? True. So carpenters, smiths, and many other craftsmen of this sort become partners in our little city, making it into a throng. Most certainly. But it wouldn't be very big yet, if we added cowherds, shepherds, and the other kinds of herdsmen, so that the farmers would have oxen for plowing, the house-builders teams to use with the farmers for hauling, and the weavers and cobblers hides and wool. Nor would it be a little city, he said, when it has all this. And further, I said, just to found the city itself in the sort of place where there would be no need of imports is pretty nearly impossible. Yes, it is impossible. Then there will also be need for still other men who will bring to it what's needed from another city. Yes, they will be needed. Now, if the agent comes empty-handed, bringing nothing needed by those from whom they take what they themselves need, he'll go away empty-handed, won't he? It seems so to me. Then they must produce at home, not only enough for themselves, but also the sort of thing and in the quantity needed by those others of whom they have need. Yes, they must. So our city needs more farmers and other craftsmen. It does need more. And similarly, surely, other agents as well, who will import and export the various products. They are merchants, aren't they? Yes. Then we'll need merchants too. 
Certainly. And if the commerce is carried on by sea, there will also be need of throngs of other men who know the business of the sea. Throngs, indeed. Now what about this? In the city itself, how will they exchange what they have produced with one another? It was for just this that we made a partnership and founded the city. Plainly, he said, by buying and selling. Out of this we'll get a market and an established currency as a token of exchange. Most certainly. If the farmer or any other craftsman brings what he has produced to the market, and he doesn't arrive at the same time as those who need what he has to exchange, will he sit in the market idle, his craft unattended? Not at all, he said. There are men who see this situation and set themselves to this service. In rightly governed cities, they are usually those whose bodies are weakest and are useless for doing any other job. They must stay there in the market and exchange things for money with those who need to sell something in exchange for money again with all those who need to buy something. This need, then, produces tradesmen in our city, I said. Don't we call tradesmen those men who are set up in the market to serve in buying and selling, and merchants those who wander among the cities? Most certainly. There are, I suppose, still some other servants who, in terms of their minds, wouldn't be quite up to the level of partnership but whose bodies are strong enough for labor. They sell the use of their strength, and, because they call their price a wage, they are, I suppose, called wage earners, aren't they? Most certainly. So the wage earners, too, as it seems, will go to fill out the city. It seems so to me. Then has our city already grown to completeness, Adiamantus? Perhaps. Where in it, then, would justice and injustice be, along with which of the things we considered did they come into being? I can't think, Socrates, he said, unless it's somewhere in some need these men have of one another. Perhaps what you say is fine, I said. It really must be considered, and we mustn't back away. First, let's consider what manner of life men so provided for will lead. Won't they make bread, wine, clothing, and shoes? And when they have built houses, they will work in the summer, for the most part naked and without shoes, and in the winter adequately clothed and shod. For food they will prepare barley meal and wheat flour. They will cook it and knead it, setting out noble loaves of barley and wheat on some reeds or clean leaves. They will stretch out on rushes strewn with yew and myrtle and feast, themselves and their children. Afterwards they will drink wine and, crowned with wreaths, sing of the gods. So they will have sweet intercourse with one another, and not produce children beyond their means, keeping an eye out against poverty or war. And Glaucon interrupted, saying, You seem to make these men have their feast without relishes. What you say is true, I said. I forgot that they'll have relishes, too. It's plain they'll have salt, olives, cheese, and they will boil onions and greens, just as one gets them in the country. And to be sure, we'll set desserts before them, figs, pulse, and beans, and they'll roast myrtle berries and acorns before the fire and drink in measure along with it. And so they will live out their lives in peace with health, as is likely, and at last, dying as old men, they will hand down other similar lives to their offspring. Here is a small community that takes care of itself. Dude makes shoes, lady makes bread, he makes sure she's got shoes, she makes sure he's got bread. Solid model, sustainable model. Notice there's no propaganda or eugenics, no caste system or crazy government or cops. Just people living in a 
dare I say, self-evident manner, based on some pretty simple logic. It's not tribal, what he's describing, it's really not even pastoral. It's closer to what we'd recognize as civilized than that, more like a village or a small town. Maybe it's Mayberry. There's money in a marketplace, and they trade with neighboring communities, so it's not some creepy, isolated, midsummer cult kind of thing. Unlike the big city Socrates describes later on, which embarks on imperial adventures to gather up new resources and wealth, this community actually looks to avoid war. Imagine that. Equally interesting, and equally different from the metropolis, is the fact that these simple community folks enjoy what I can only call organic culture. In the big authoritarian city, the government has to effectively manufacture and sell a culture which encourages national loyalty, ensures uniformity of thought, excludes any inklings of wrong think, and effectively serves to sustain the permanent regimentation of the population. For the empire to survive, its people must be thoroughly propagandized, practically from birth, to believe that their state is exceptional, that they are God's chosen people. In the small community, however, no such patriotism exists. They sing traditional songs that honor the gods of nature, just like their parents did before them. This is the ideal society of Socrates. Not the sprawling utopia, but the simple, voluntary community. However, even this idyllic setting is a utopia in its own right. How long can a people remain content? How many generations can pass until finally the youth, sick and tired of their parents' boring old ways, decide to burn it all down or go out looking for something a little more than just myrtle berries and acorns? Representing humanity's characteristic discontent, the young Glaucon, who is Plato's brother, scoffs at Socrates' simple village. Socrates accepts Glaucon's challenge and sets out to conceive of the ideal, luxurious city which then becomes the basis for the famous utopia which everyone associates with the Republic. Though throughout the remainder of Book 2, Socrates will remark that his preference still lies with his first imaginary community. If you were providing for a city of sows, Socrates, on what else would you fatten them than this? Well, how should it be, Glaucon, I said. As is conventional, he said. I suppose men who aren't going to be wretched recline on couches and eat from tables and have relishes and desserts just like men have nowadays. All right, I said. I understand. We are, as it seems, considering not only how a city, but also a luxurious city comes into being. Perhaps that's not bad either. For in considering such a city too, we could probably see in what way justice and injustice naturally grow in cities. Now, the true city is, in my opinion, the one we just described. A healthy city, as it were. But, if you want to, let's take a look at a feverish city, too. Nothing stands in the way. For these things, as it seems, won't satisfy some, or this way of life, but couches, tables, and other furniture will be added. And, of course, relishes, perfume, incense, courtesans, and cakes. All sorts of all of them. And, in particular, we can't still postulate the mere necessities we were talking about at first, houses, clothes, and shoes, but paintings and embroidery must also be set in motion, and gold, ivory, and everything of the sort must be obtained. Isn't that so? Yes, he said. Then the city must be made bigger again. This healthy one isn't adequate anymore. 
but must already be gorged with a bulky mass of things, which are not in cities because of necessity. All the hunters and imitators, many concerned with figures and colors, many with music, and poets and their helpers, rhapsodes, actors, choral dancers, contractors and craftsmen of all sorts of equipment, for feminine adornment as well as other things. And so we'll need more servants too. Or doesn't it seem that there will be need of teachers, wet nurses, governesses, beauticians, barbers, and further, relish makers and cooks? And what's more, we're in addition going to need swine herds. This animal wasn't in our earlier city. There was no need. But in this one, there will be need of it in addition. And there will also be need of very many other fatted beasts if someone will eat them, won't there? Of course. Won't we be in much greater need of doctors if we follow this way of life rather than the earlier one? Much greater. And the land, of course, which was then sufficient for feeding the men who were then, will now be small, although it was sufficient. Or how should we say it? Like that, he said. Then we must cut off a piece of our neighbor's land, if we are going to have sufficient for pasture and tillage, and they in turn from ours, if they let themselves go to the unlimited acquisition of money, overstepping the boundary of the necessary. Quite necessarily, Socrates, he said. After that, won't we go to war as a consequence, Glaucon? Or how will it be? Like that, he said. And let's not yet say whether war works evil or good, I said, but only this much, that we have in its turn found the origin of war, in those things whose presence in cities most of all produces evils, both private and public. Most certainly. Now, my friend, the city must still be bigger, and not by a small number, but by a whole army, which will go out and do battle with invaders for all the wealth and all the things we were just now talking about. In these few pages from the Republic, we've heard Socrates consider the origins of society itself, the origins of imperialism, and the origins of war. The most basic society, what Socrates calls the true city, is based on division of labor and mutual aid. So long as everyone does his or her part and makes sure everybody's taken care of, the society maintains itself. The big city, which Socrates calls a fevered city, is another story entirely. Complexity means more entropy. The bigger the system, the more things there are that can go wrong. The grand civilization is very delicate, and, as described in more detail in the Republic, will require all sorts of fine-tuned institutions to keep its economy rolling. It's going to need a standing army to protect, and steal, all those excess goods. It'll need a special school system to sort people into whichever niche of the economy they're best suited for. It'll need a working class, a military class, and an administrative class. Certain sorts of songs and stories and forms of entertainment will have to be banned to keep the people from getting too uppity. Likewise, other sorts of songs and stories and forms of entertainment will have to be doled out by the administrators to fabricate a culture of patriotism and duty. This goes on and on. Socrates goes through and provides logical arguments which explain why each of these things will be absolutely necessary if the big fancy city is going to make it. Because he argues that all of these things will be necessary, though some of his arguments don't quite work in my opinion, one might get the impression that he's actually in favor of all this wild stuff. But I'm not so sure. Considering that he expresses favor for the simpler, true city, 
again, his words, plus, knowing that he was a kind of schlubby dude who didn't care much for worldly things, it might be the case that he was actually criticizing the big city by kind of saying, okay, you want a fancy, luxurious city. Here are all the impossible hoops you're going to have to perfectly jump through if you want such a place to actually work. Now, if my wife were here, she'd say that I just want that to be the case because I like Socrates and I want him to be criticizing totalitarianism. But she is not here right now. The truth is, it's just not clear what Socrates would have actually liked to have seen manifested. And thankfully, it doesn't really matter. The totalitarian model he described has been manifested to varying degrees throughout history, and it seems to be true that there's just really no other way to maintain such a society, even just for a little while, unless you've got everybody in the population severely restricted and regimented. Of course, this doesn't tend to work out very well either, but folks will continue to try. America has been like this for a long time. It's like what John Taylor Gatto used to say about school. School is a terrible, terrible thing that conditions kids to be cowardly and obedient and basically robs them of their time and creativity. But we can't get rid of it because if we did, our economy would literally collapse. So long as we want 12 new iPhones a year and dopey-looking neon designer shoes and organic vegan Pop-Tarts or whatever, we'll just have to accept that we'll also have to be putting our kids through 12 years of continuous indoctrination. Otherwise, they'll be smart enough to see that all their precious treasures are in fact trash. Trash that doesn't even work half the time. And, man, does anyone really think that without school, there'd be anybody who believed anything that came out of the corporate press? Have you watched that shit? Go and turn on CNN right now. Do it. It's the cringiest, most blatantly full of shit drivel you could ever imagine. And there are a lot of people who lap that puke up like grungy old dogs. Lots of people. Like, dozens. <sighs> so, is one level of the Republic a warning that a big society built on luxury and consumerism will essentially have to adopt some degree of authoritarianism and screw with the ways in which people naturally organize just to keep the big house of cards standing? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe Socrates didn't mean it that way, but it's certainly one way of interpreting the text, and it's a useful message that we could all bear hearing, certainly here in America. Now, whatever his preferences may have been, Socrates most definitely had more faith in the integrity of his shining metropolis than I do. Personally, I think the big city he describes in the Republic is doomed to fail, because, well, it's just too dang complex. You've got the so-called ideal city, built on all this propaganda and lies, and all the subversive stuff is censored, and they need this big military. <sighs> yeah, I just think right off the bat, it's too much going on. Too much complex interdependence inside the system. If one piece collapses, it's not long until the whole thing collapses. It's a castle made of sand. It's doomed. And so are we, probably, for all the same reasons. You hear that? America sucks. Socrates says so. There is a less doomed kind of society, the quaint little place he described in the first place. That sounded kind of nice. But here's the thing. I don't think they have iPhones or stupid shoes or gluten-free vegan Big Macs. I don't think they have cars. This was Glaucon's issue with it, and this would probably be a lot of people's issue with it. There's no progress. There's no innovation. 
It's just the same life for everybody forever. I mentioned earlier that, kind of in its theoretical construction, medieval society resembled the fancy-schmancy city. But the random medieval village probably resembled something more like this. Contained, divided labor, no progress to speak of. Sure, they had to pay off some lord or whatever, but aside from that, it seems pretty close to what Socrates was saying. Would you like to live in a place like that? I mean, things can stay the same for a long time. A whole lot of small communities lived like that for well over a thousand years. So it's sure as hell a stable model. But now that we live in the big, luxurious civilization, and we're all spoiled by people who leave toys and smiley face boxes on our doorsteps every other day, who's going to want to go back to yoking the oxen at 5 a.m. and building their own chairs? Sure, our system relies on insane levels of violence and lies and stuff, but the, but the Big Macs. Sure, the whole thing could come down at any time. Jefferson said, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just. But the phone's got the boobies in it. We've got a choice. Somewhat. As shaky as our big system is right now, it collapsing doesn't mean that it just disappears. It means a whole lot of wreckage and a lot of people getting caught up in the collapse. It's also a very sticky system. It's not so easy to just opt out. But people can emulate the small society... Socrates' true city, to some extent, if they really want to. You can set up little trade groups with neighbors, you can shop local, and you can start a garden, for God's sake, start a garden. And you can keep your phone with the boobies in it and your dairy-free cheese whiz if you must. But really, it might not be such a bad idea to think about true sustainability. Not the phony UN sustainability you hear about. I can hardly think of anything less sustainable than a world-governing body. But, you know, you can think about what you're going to do when the lights go out permanently, or when the grocery stores stop carrying food. See, that kind of thing doesn't hurt folks in the quote-unquote true city. They don't have any of that stuff anyway. You don't lose luxuries that you don't have. And just because you do have luxuries today doesn't at all guarantee that you'll still have them tomorrow. Just something to consider. So, these have been just some of my thoughts on a tiny little piece of Plato's Republic. Even just from this section of the book, there's a whole lot more that could be said about justice and virtue and society and war, etc., etc., etc. I will 100% do more shows on the Republic in the future, because I just can't resist. It's really one of my favorite books, and there's just so much there to chew on. But, today, I just wanted to point out the other forgotten utopia from this book, the fundamental, bare-boned, sustainable society, free of propaganda and eugenics and a standing army, and free of luxury and progress. So I want to keep this episode pretty short, so I'm going to wrap up here, but please, I'm telling you, read The Republic in its entirety. You're going to love it. It's very thought-provoking, very fun. Check it out. It's tremendous. And of course, as always, go to storyofnowhere.com for all of my work, including the podcast, the book in its various forms, ebook, paperback, and audiobook, as well as my show with my wife, They Say, in which we analyze current and historical issues of the Council on Relations official journal, Foreign Affairs. We've got another episode coming up very soon. 
The last episode was devoted to just ranting and raving about the neocons, so that was a lot of fun. The next uh, episode, we're going to be talking about the current issue, the March-April edition of the journal, so that'll be soon. Keep your eyes open for that. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify or iTunes or Podcast Addict, and share it with a pal who might be interested in the kinds of things I talk about on here. You know, I don't need a huge audience, but it would be nice to have an audience. (laughs) As always, thank you for listening. This has been a more casual, off-the-cuff, short edition of the Story of Nowhere podcast. Obviously, I've got some more in-depth episodes coming soon, most notably the Political Spectrum show, which I'm currently working on. Not exactly sure when that's going to come out, but when it does come out, it should be a doozy. So keep your eyes peeled for that one. On that note so long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, goodbye. Did you see it? Yes. Isn't it beautiful? Yes. I told you. How could I know? How could I? How could I ever imagine?